Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and I am coming to you solo today. So for those of you who have been listening along so far this year, my plan for this year is to have kind of a dual episode structure where some of the episodes I come to solo, where we jump into topics and questions that come in from you, the listeners, via email or social media channels to go alongside the interview shows that I'll be doing. My kind of target so far is going to be four episode interview style per month alongside two or more solo ones. So six is kind of the low target for now. I'm hoping to maybe get that up to closer to eight, possibly more by the end of the year. We'll see how things are going. Uh, My wife and I are actually about to finalize our move to Austin. We close on our, our new house on the 14th. So that will make it a little bit easier from the podcast side of things. Right now, I've been doing a little bit more of a remote mobile recording setup here as we've uh, kind of gotten to Austin, but yet to move into our permanent house. Once I get in there, I'll have a little bit of a setup and a little bit more of a consistent recording structure. And that will likely create an efficiency that will allow me to do a little bit more with the podcast side of things. So looking forward to that. Uh, Some things coming up with the podcast in general. For those of you looking forward, we've got some exciting interviews on tap that are up on Patreon right now, but have yet to be released to all podcast platforms and YouTubes. Those include what will ultimately be, I believe, episode 275, which is is called Training Nutrition Recovery with Dr. Mark Bubbs. Dr. Bubbs comes back onto the show uh, from a previous uh, guest. And uh, he discusses a lot of things about just proper fueling for sports, where the nuance is within that, as well as proper programming and things like that. He's got a new book to go along with one of my favorite books of all time, Peak, that, that he, he co-authored. So look forward to that one. Then coming up after that will be Ben Patrick, Knees Over Toes guy. Like I mentioned in the last episode, I believe we went through a workout and uh, then recorded a quick episode to talk about the hows and whys of that particular episode. So if you're interested in the knees over toes philosophy, their training principles and some really great moves to incorporate into your strength training, that'll be a fun one to check out for you. Coming up after that will be an interview with Dr. Nick Norwitz. Those of you who have been following along and staying up to date with the episodes will recall that Nick came on the show with previous guest Dave Feldman to discuss a paper they most recently published that has to do with a phenotype called a lean mass hyperresponder, which is an interesting kind of subgroup that uh, tends to have incredibly high LDL cholesterol, but with all other health markers looking very, very good. So they're looking to do more research into this group of people to find out if there's similar risk factors with that cohort as there is with someone that would not qualify in that phenotype, but have those high numbers. And uh, it's going to be a fun topic, I think, to follow over the next coming years as those guys kind of hammer in some research. But Nick came on the show to share kind of his background, his particular situation, why he's interested in this particular topic and, uh, and reached out to Dave to work with him and things like that. Uh, so we, we recorded well over two hours, I believe. So it was a pretty long episode. It was great to have Nick on. I probably should have had him on a while ago, which is 
why it lasted as long as it did, but uh, get ready for a longer episode coming up from him. So those are some of the, the upcoming shows that will be, be being published in the next month or so. Um, other things to address. So in the last solo episode that I recorded, uh, which would have been episode 272, uh, I had a few great questions that came in from listeners and they had to do with someone, one question had to do with like alcohol and performance, another one with electrolyte protocol and mental training were kind of the, the targets there. And when I went through the part of that episode that discussed alcohol and performance, I think I might've gotten just a little too narrow in scope by focusing purely on the performance recovery side of what kind of alcohol does and what quantities the research shows uh, due to these sort of things and neglected to uh, just make a reminder that uh, one in five, I believe is the stat, people in uh, the population are at risk to addiction of all sorts and uh, alcohol notwithstanding. So obviously if you fall within that cohort, it would be wise to look at it through that lens versus any nuance that you gather from overconsumption or reasonable moderate amounts of consumption that cohorts best off with a no consumption protocol, regardless of what the research says. So I was thankful I did actually a consultation call with one of the podcast listeners earlier this week. And he had mentioned that he enjoyed the episode, but thought it would be worthwhile to mention that. And I 100% agreed with him. So I did want to make sure I took some time on this episode to uh, say that so that if you listen to that episode or did listen to that episode, take note that that is a, a good piece of advice to include with any consideration around that particular topic. All right. So for the show itself, if you want to support the HPO podcast, there are a few ways to do it. You can do it without spending a penny. That is very impactful for the show. And that is by liking and subscribing on your favorite podcast listening platform or YouTube. When you share, like, subscribe, add comments, ratings, and things to the show, it helps me grow. And that offers opportunities to record more episodes, spend more time on the podcast itself. So if, uh, if that's something that, if it's the show something you've enjoyed, then please head over and do that. When you have a moment, if you want to support monetarily, there's also a few ways to go about that. Uh, there is a Patreon page for the show, which does offer ad-free audio recordings that are both early release as well as continuing the ad-free section. So if you're someone who wants to just get right to it, eliminate the ads or listen to it as soon as it comes out and I have it uploaded there on Patreon, that is a great way to support the show and get those perks. You could also head over to my website at zachbitter.com dot com forward slash HPO. And there is a link on that page that allows you to do a one time, no third party uh, service type of donation if you want to do it that way. So you can just you can just donate through your credit or debit card with that. And you don't have to join a platform like Patreon or anything like that if that's something you'd rather do. So you can link to the Patreon page at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO or do a solo one-time donation through that link as well. That'll be in the show notes. Also, another way to support the show is by supporting the show sponsors. So I list all the show sponsors, the discounts they offer, the links and all that stuff at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. If you want to see a list of that, uh, this particular episode is brought to you by my friends at by optimizers. 
they want to offer you an option to bolster your gut biome and therefore improve immunity. One big way you can improve immunity is by supporting your gut health. This is why Bioptimizers offers a product called Biome Breakthrough. Jonathan Jacobs, an MD and professor at UCLA, says the microbiome and the immune system are critically intertwined. This means that if you eat the wrong things, your immune system can suffer. But if you eat the right things, your immune system can become stronger. It can be difficult to eat all the right things all the time. So that's when Biome Breakthrough can shine. Biome Breakthrough contains powerful probiotics and prebiotics, as well as one of a kind ingredient called IGY Max. IGY Max is a patented egg-based protein that enhances gut health, reverses damage caused by antibiotics, and even helps with immunity threats. By taking Biome Breakthrough, you can eliminate bad bacteria, feed good bacteria, build up your immunity, and repair your gut lining all at the same time. The best time to take Biome Breakthrough is first thing in the morning, mix it in eight ounces of water and drink it on an empty stomach to experience less sickness, fewer gut problems, and less gas and bloating. As always, Bioptimizers and Biome Breakthrough are risk-free with their impressive 365-day money-back guarantee, no questions asked. So you can head over to biomebreakthrough.com forward slash human and use HUMAN10, that's all caps H-U-M-A-N-1-0, to receive 10% off any order. And rest assured, you have that 365-day money-back guarantee, no questions asked. So if it doesn't work for you and you want to discontinue, you have that option available. So head to biomebreakthrough.com forward slash human or head over to my show sponsor page at zachbetter.com forward slash show sponsors. Also supporting this episode are my friends at Ultimate Direction. I have partnered with Ultimate Direction to help me get from A to B in my training and racing this year. Ultimate Direction makes a wide range of handheld water bottles, belts, vests, and running apparel. So if you're looking for something to help you stay hydrated during your workouts, your hikes, your day-to-day -day life, if you need a little extra storage to carry along while you're out there adventuring, you have a lot of options at ultimatedirection.com. For me personally, I've been using their hydro light belt it's like an ergonomic fanny pack for runners and hikers their raced vest when i need a little extra storage and a few more pockets and their fast draw 500 handheld for the majority of my training so far this year i'm really looking forward to taking it through the paces in some races for 2022 if you're in the market for some hydration and storage for your activities head over to ultimatedirection.com or swing over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors for details and links. All right, folks. So let's get into the topics at hand for today's episode. So I got a lot of questions that actually came in between now and the last episode. I'm going to try to keep these to three questions so that these episodes aren't too lengthy but uh, I may extend that as things go or add a couple extra if the questions aren't quite as lengthy. These ones that came in tended to be a little more in-depth type questions. So I'm going to do three of them. If you sent one in most recently and you're wondering, hey, why didn't that show up on this, this last episode? Hold tight. I'll get it up there. It's just kind of coming in an order here. So the first question that was asked was by Todd Sholos, and he wanted to know if I had any input implanting 
my training plans for long distance obstacle course races. Currently, he's following my 50K plan for a Spartan Ultra and cross training separately, but considered, considered working in some cross training into the weekly long runs, but haven't to this point any put input. Okay, this is a great question. So for those of you unfamiliar, there are obstacle course races, some that go 50 kilometers. So you're running 50 kilometers. Oftentimes, as far as I can tell, these events tend to be very uh, remote in the sense that a lot of climbing and descending, oftentimes technical terrain. So it's not like a flat 50 kilometers. It's a lot of climbing and descending. It's going to be a slow course. So you're already probably from a time perspective, stretching beyond the typical 50 kilometer or the average 50 kilometer time frame. On top of it, these type of courses offer obstacles you have to get over along the way. So it's not just going up and down the technical trails. You're also maybe, you know, going through mud pits, crawling under things, climbing over things, swinging, all sorts of weird stuff. So uh, it just introduces a lot more full body needs on event day than say, if you were to just run 50 kilometers. So Todd had purchased one of my 50 kilometer training plans, which are catered towards just running. Uh, and he's curious about what would I add to that plan in order to make it a little more specific for a 50 kilometer obstacle course race versus just a 50 kilometer run. So even though it's non-specific to the exact programming I'm having on that, I still think you want to go and lean towards event specificity difference. So what I mean by that is you want to look at what are different about this event than what is being prescribed there in terms of what you'd maybe want to add to that plan or replace parts of the plan with. So for this one, I think the big emphasis is going to be on making sure that you get the upper body strength and activities that are going to be required for the day of. And I would look at that the same way I do the training. And my training philosophy, generally speaking, is going to be we're going to work through a system of intensities for workouts with certain focus points at certain points in the plan. And we're going to follow an order of operation of least specific to most specific. Uh, and that's going to be based on your race day intensity. So knowing what race you're going to do and the approximate time frame in which it's going to take you to complete that is a pretty good piece to that puzzle to have up front so that you know where to place these certain workouts from a timeline standpoint. So I would look at that the same way where uh, with the upper body development, you're maybe doing some strength work in the gym in the early stages of the plan. And that will likely carry through the plan. But as you get closer to it, I would definitely encourage you to get more specific with the type of movements you're doing to mimic or replicate the uh, specific things you'd actually be doing out there on the course. So if you have to do like a monkey bars over a mud pit or something like that, or a rope climb or bear crawl underneath barbed wire through a mud puddle, things like that. You're going to want to practice the physical movements that are going to be required to do that specifically as you get closer and you can get as specific as you want. Todd kind of hinted at this in his question. You're asking about, should I embed these into my long runs? That would be the most specific area to do it for sure. Because when you think about a race that's 50 kilometers along through very harsh terrain and with obstacles, you're going to be out there for a while. There's just no way around it. So your long run is oftentimes going to be the most specific workout that you do 
compared to the event itself. So embedding some of those obstacles into your long runs would be a great way to do that, especially when you get to that part of the training plan where you've built up your long run and that becomes kind of a main focus of your training, having some of that built into it and working on the different things that you're going to use. So like if you know that uh, you know crawling is going to be something that you're going to have to do during this event, then working on some strength movements that uh, support that type of a movement or the monkey bars, working on strength things that are going to support that type of movement uh, alongside the very specific act of actually doing it would be, would be my advice with that. So you're sort of thinking of it a little bit like a triathlon mindset where you have like a variety of different sports kind of all intertwined into one. And ultimately you have a specific amount of training load that your body can tolerate and you have to distribute that in a way that is going to be most conducive for you to improve your performance. So there will be a little bit of like probably feeling like you're leaving something on the table for certain types of activities within the broad scope. That is an obstacle course that spans 50 kilometers, but that's okay because you're trying to be a jack of all trades versus a master of one. If you're a master of just the run, you may suffer on the obstacles to the degree that you're on a slower time. If you're a master of the obstacles, you may find that you're moving so slowly between them that you sacrifice time. So you, you may have to be uh, like not your best at any one thing, but relatively good at all of them is kind of the direction I'd like to head with that. Uh, like I said before, least specific to most specific is the general type of uh, kind of framework to structure it around. And then add those obstacles to runs, especially as event nears and most specifically with that long run. But you could you could introduce those during other runs as well. I wouldn't just stick with them in the long run. All right, Todd, hopefully that answers your question. It has a little bit of clarity, but uh, thank you for purchasing one of my plans either way. It's uh, always cool to hear from folks who are trying out some of my ready-made plans or uh, purchase one of my personalized plans to hear how things are going with, with, with their training and what, what questions they maybe have along, along the way. A next question came in from Caroline, and she wanted to know, how do you define zone two? Different people seem to have different ideas on max percentage of heart rate for zone two. All right. So this is a good question. So yeah, like those of you who have done triathlon training or heart rate training are probably familiar that there is this framework that helps you guide the intensity of your workouts. So they're aiming what they, what they aim to do is to try to make sure you are actually doing the right intensity when you're supposed to. So if you're supposed to go out for say an easy run day, you can use something like heart rate to help you stay in that structure. Or if you're supposed to be doing a run that is like moderately difficult, you stay within a specific uh, heart rate zone. That's going to keep you there. If you're supposed to do a, a short interval session, or a high intensity interval session or something like that, you're staying in that prescribed system. So zone two, generally speaking, is going to be a little bit of a lower intensity part of that programming. I like to think of it kind of as the part that kind of pushes up to the end of what I would consider the easy category before you would kind of cross over into what I would consider like moderate intensity uh, of difficulty. So there are some ways to kind of define that. I don't prescribe my training plans with like zone one, zone two, zone three, zone four. I do have a workout intensity guide where I use descriptors, heart rates, different field tests to kind of help someone determine what pace or what intensity they should be targeting for a certain workout. Uh, one of them is what I call a base run. And that would probably be very close to zone two 
technically you could argue that it stretches a little past zone two at its highest point, but more often than not, it's going to kind of be fairly consistent with that. So the way I describe that is I call it a four to five out of 10 perceived effort on my scale. And it's a comfortable, but up to the point where you, if you want, if you went any faster, you would enter a moderate level of intensity. You should not feel like you need to focus hard to carry this pace. You should be able to carry on a multi-sentence conversation without losing your breath during this intensity. Your breathing should not feel labored at this intensity for individuals targeting a maximum aerobic function uh, or math training intensity. The upper limits of this intensity often line up with their math number. The upper end of this intensity should be close to your aerobic threshold. If pushing up to the higher end of this intensity heart rate begins to feel labored or forced, it is recommended to shift closer to the lower end of the target intensity. If you're using heart rate, which it sounds like what Caroline is, is possibly doing, you should be targeting between 70 to 80% of your max heart rate. Or another way to look at it would be like 81 to 90% of your lactate threshold heart rate. So if you do a metabolic heart or a field test to identify your lactate threshold, then you could potentially use a percentage of that. Uh, it can also be calculated by subtracting roughly 20 to 30 beats per minute, or I'm sorry, 20, yeah, 20 to 30 beats per minute from your lactate threshold heart rate. So sometimes it depends on what you kind of tie that number to. It is, it's going to range a little bit from like high to low percentage. Uh, I just want to remind people when we're looking at heart rate, I think it is a great tool and I'm not trying to discourage people from using heart rate to help them guide their training, help them reflect on performance gains through their training and things like that, but it can get messy. So be mindful of that. Uh, especially on event day, especially if you're doing a longer event, because heart rate gets even more messy, the longer you're out there, the more opportunities you give yourself to, to take on like dehydration, fatigue, weather changes, environment variances, and things like that can also oftentimes impact how your heart rate is going to play out on an event. So I don't want you to necessarily get so tied to your heart rate monitor that that is your only compass for me personally. I advise going mostly by perceived effort. Once you can trust that your body, once you can trust like that, you're able to interpret, okay, this effort produces this type of intensity. Most people get there with, uh, uh, enough practice and sometimes heart rate can be a great tool to help you identify where you fall within those. So you can clean up your perceived effort predictability with heart rate. And then if you're like me, you may, try to use heart rate as kind of a secondary tool or another tool that, that I personally like to use a little bit more from a post-workout analysis standpoint. So looking for things like, is my pace improving at a specific heart rate when I can control for as many of the other variables as possible, like hydration, rest, recovery, sleep, weather, terrain, things like that. So for that, I think it can be very useful. An example that'd be if I'm running at a heart rate of 150 beats per minute, similar temperatures, same course, uh, similar recovery status. And my pace goes from say a seven minute mile down to a six thirty minute mile over the course of a four week, uh, training cycle. Then I can look at that and say, okay, I'm heading in the right direction. My pace is improving. I'm getting more efficient at this specific heart rate. All right. Thank you, Caroline, for sending in that question. Let me know if I missed your intent there. Uh, otherwise we're heading into the third question of this podcast episode. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode is sponsored by Bioptimizers. 
Biome Breakthrough and by Ultimate Directions, Hydration Packs, Bottles, and Belts. Head over to ZachBitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors for details, links, and discounts. So this next one is from Leo and it says, I'm sure you've answered this before, but if you are almost always low carb, but want to incorporate some for a race, how do you go about training, titrating them in? What sources do you personally use? All right. So this is a great question. And I've been getting more and more of these questions lately. And one thing I was planning on working on kind of near the end of last year that kind of got pushed to this year and I still intend to do it. But with a move to Austin and things like that, it's just been like kind of prioritizing things that need to get done versus things I want to get done. But one of the things that I want to get done at some point in the near future is to create a low carb template that kind of just highlights exactly how I structure my low carb diet within kind of a training so that the people alongside kind of my ready-made plans, training plans have something where they can, they can get that will like say, okay, this is the way I would intend it to be looked at is like, this isn't necessarily something that is going to be like the magic bullet for you or even the preferred route for you. But for those who are really curious about just a little more details into what I'm doing can have that resource and kind of see the hows and whys as to the structure of it. And then use that as a way to maybe formulate something that'll work for them. Uh, so look for, or look out for that sometime this year while I get kind of settled here and, and get that put together but uh, generally speaking, I, the, one of the reasons why I think this question can be confusing for people and it keeps coming up is because my lifestyle is very polarizing in the sense that like off season versus peak training is, is incredibly different. Let's like complete rest up to training sometimes 20 hours a week. So nutrition oftentimes ebbs and flows within that framework and what works for me or seems to be good for off season isn't necessarily optimized or ideal for peak training. So I do adjust things along the way to try to make sure I'm putting my best foot forward when, when preparing for certain stages of the training cycle and the season itself. So in off season, is usually when I'm the strictest with carbohydrates. This is the time of year where I will a lot of times be strict ketogenic. So like 50 grams of lesser carbohydrate and I'm very, doing very little activity. I'll move around. Uh, I'm not just sitting on the couch all day, but uh, I, I'm not structuring training during off season. I'm not forcing myself to do anything. If I want to go for a bike ride or go to the gym and, and do some strength work or go for a light, easy run, go for a hike, go skiing, something like that. Uh, I'll do it, but I'm not going to force myself to do it. I'm going to stop as soon as it's no longer fun, no longer enjoyable, or if it feels like I'm getting fatigued from it in a way that's not beneficial. So during that phase of training, I don't mind dropping the carbs down to next to nothing. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, kind of a nice little reset for me, I think after a big buildup, then I'll enter kind of like a base phase of the training season where I'm working on developing my, my base pace, kind of like what we when with uh, Caroline's question, I'm doing a lot of running kind of up to that base, up to that zone two or aerobic threshold, maximum aerobic function, and just kind of like confirming where my fitness is at. And usually that just depends on kind of how my off season went, what my previous training plan was like. Uh, it will usually determine how long I spend in this time. But during that base is when I'll start in increasing the carbohydrate intake from that more classic ketogenic low structure. And during that phase, I'm usually targeting about 100 to 150 grams of carbohydrates per day. 
And during this phase, it tends to be more consistent. It tends to be kind of that in that 100 to 150 gram window pretty much every day, partly because at this point in my training, it's much more predictable. It's much more consistent. I might add a little bit of volume throughout it, but generally speaking, it's going to be fairly consistent from one day to the next. It's not as polarizing as like peaking for a race where I'm running 30 miles one day and none the next or something like that. So it tends to be a little more conducive for more of a plug and play type of structure when it comes to macronutrient ratios or gram totals. Then I usually enter a phase of training where I'm focusing on short intervals. The reason I'm usually focusing on short intervals this early in a plan is because I'm often peaking for a hundred mile race. So if we go back to what I was talking about earlier, uh, we're going least specific to most specific. When you think of the pace and the intensity at which you're going to perform for a hundred miles, short intervals are about as far from that as possible. I think they're still very valuable in pulling up your potential from the top. Uh, but they're not necessarily specific to the race we're doing the way I, I joke around with my coaching clients. If you find yourself running your short interval intensity endpoint during a hundred, hundred mile race, other than through the finish line, you're probably going to pay for it. So it's about as unspecific of a running pace that I will do during a plan. It's also the highest intensity, which means I'm going to be more glycolytic during these. However, it also is kind of the first exposure during my training plan for like the, even the, very micro view to be polarizing where I might do something very hard, very glycolytic one day, and then have a lot of rest the next day. So it tends to be a little bit more of a polarizing cycle during my training. So for these short intervals focus sections, they're often also paired with where my strength work will start to kind of peak, where I'm kind of back into the part where I can tolerate kind of the maximum strength routine that I would typically have. I've built back up to it after the off season. So I'm feeling like I can tolerate a higher load of that. So this all kind of adds up to being a, a fairly high intensity phase of my calendar year. So for these, I'll, I'll oftentimes be above 150 grams of carbohydrates around these key training sessions. So for example, if I'm doing say two short interval sessions in a week and two lower body strength sessions, and let's say I do those on Tuesday and Thursday, I'm likely going to have a more than 150 grams of carbohydrates on and around those two days. So that might mean if I'm doing a big training session in the morning, I'm going to have a little more carbohydrate for dinner the night before. And then I'm also likely going to have a little more carbohydrate after that particular session, whether it be the short intervals or the strength session. And on that kind of like roughly 20, 24 hour period of time, it's very likely I'll go above 150 grams of carbohydrates. Now with that, you know, those type of training sessions oftentimes need to be met with a little more rest than I'll typically do. So then the next day I might have a very easy day where my output is low. Uh, my volume is probably low. The intensity is incredibly low. I'm focusing primarily, if not entirely on recovery. So I can match that day that was a little higher for me in carbohydrate intake with a day that's a little lower than normal carbohydrate. Then over the course of say four to six weeks of focus on short intervals and strength work, I may have days that go well above 150 grams of carbohydrates, but I also may have days that go below 50 grams of carbohydrate. So usually if you look at it through the entire cycle of that intensity still comes out to, you know, being in that hundred, 150 gram framework, uh, sometimes a little more, sometimes not. It just really depends on kind of how I'm responding to training. I always let the, the workout results be kind of the driver and how I kind of structure things. So if I'm feeling 
Like I'm not quite punching that final gear the way I want to on some of those short intervals or those strength sessions. Uh, one of the first things I'll do is reintroduce a little more carbohydrate and see if that clears it up. If that clears it up, then I know it's not something else I'm doing wrong. If it still doesn't get cleared up after that, that's a sign to me that maybe I'm overreaching a little bit, maybe getting a little too uh, ambitious with the, the, the intensity or the volume at intensity. And I need to like reassess my, my balance of work to recovery. Uh, next, usually I'll phase that from those short intervals into long intervals or tempo runs, which uh, essentially the way I look at the intensity for those type of workouts is it's an intensity that you can sustain for about 60 minutes. If you were to do 60 minutes at as evenly paced all out race day setting type of situation. So when you think about it, let's say I'm doing like intervals that are three by 10 minutes. I want each of those 10 minute intervals to be at an intensity that I could sustain for 60 minutes in a race day setting. but uh, I'm not trying to necessarily like go faster than that perceived effort, uh, during that. So those, they should, they should match up. It tends to be a little bit higher intensity than certainly the base phase, but a little bit lower intensity than the short intervals, but more volume, because since it is a little slower, I can tolerate more of it. So usually I'm able to do maybe two, three times as much volume at this intensity than the short interval ones. So the lowering intensity means I'm going to need less carbohydrate, but the increase in volume can make up or exceed that for this session, for this phase. So oftentimes during this, I structure my nutrition the same way as I would with those short intervals where I'm hitting 150 plus grams of carbohydrate around those key training sessions, and then uh, maybe titrating them back down a little bit on easy rest recovery days uh, so that my balance kind of comes out to where I tend to feel the best. Next, I'll phase into long run peaking or development, or another way to look at it is race intensity development. For this, since I'm oftentimes racing 100 milers, again, lower intensity, which makes it more conducive for me to not necessarily look at carbohydrates as my primary fuel source during these training sessions. So for these, these phases of training, it's much easier for me to kind of go back to that slightly more consistent hundred, 150 gram per carbohydrate per day framework. Like I did during base training, uh, or during, uh, yeah, base training. So that's, uh, that's how I look at like that. It does get a little polarizing in that when I get to the end of that phase, it might not, it may be a situation where I do like a three to five hour run on Saturday and then another one on Sunday. So I'm just going to like take on a fairly sizable energy deficit after two days like that, but then I'll have a rest day following it. So I start to kind of look at nutrition a little bit more in a multi-day framework during that phase of the year than I would maybe in other phases. So rather than thinking like, okay, Saturday, I'm running four hours. I need exactly this many calories in these ratios. Then Sunday I'm running another four hours. I need these calories in these ratios. And then the following is a rest day. So I need to come way back down to like just my resting metabolic rate needs and things like that. I look at it more like, well, what is the total in that three days? And, uh, how, how can I kind of spread it out a little more evenly? So I don't feel like I'm stuffing my face for those two training session days. And then like barely, barely eating or eating a fraction of what I would on those big training days on a day where I'm doing next to nothing. It gets, I find it at least a little more convenient and it hasn't been unproductive in my, in my performance to be a little under, under my, my output on those two bigger days and then over my output on that rest day. But then after those three days, it averages out to be 
a pretty even um, amount of energy output input uh, based on uh, where I'm at. Usually at that point in my season, I've already been at weight race weight for a while for where I feel I perform the best. So I'm not trying to lose weight. So I do want to make sure I'm on top of energy balance uh, over the, the course of kind of weeks and months and not, not losing additional weight at that point. Uh, so race day, um, let's, let's imagine a hundred mile target. Usually I am looking at a, up to 40 grams of carbohydrate per hour. The way I describe racing, and I like to say it this way, cause I think it's more inclusive in the sense that it doesn't like put a position of like, Oh, you're a low carb athlete. Your goals are different. You're a high carb athlete. Your goals are different. Granted your logistics are going to likely be different, but the goal is the same, whether you're high carb, moderate carb, low carb, ketogenic. And that is defending muscle glycogen on race day. That's your small fuel tank. That's the one that you can potentially deplete. And you do want to think of it as in a framework of, it's not like, I have a full glycogen tank and I can ride that down to zero. And then I bonk. It's really more like you got a full glycogen tank. You ride that down to roughly 40%. Then your body starts making it feel more difficult at a given pace in order to try to get you to slow down in order to try to preserve muscle glycogen. I don't think there's a lot of great research on that 40% number, but the research we do have, I think indicates that roughly around there is when the body typically starts to kind of behave differently and send you some signals about, Hey, look, we're starting to dip in. We're going to start getting a little more stingy with our, our muscle glycogen. And therefore that could impact your performance. So you're trying to defend that. Uh, regardless of what your dietary pattern is. So for me, based on like my fat, fat oxidation tests and where my ratios of carbs to fats are at the intensity, which I oftentimes race hundred miles gives me kind of a ballpark number of what I need in order to defend muscle glycogen. And those numbers usually come out to roughly 30 grams. Now there's another thing to consider here, which is what is the ramification of exceeding that number? So for me on race day, once I get going, I'm not really concerned about sabotaging my fat oxidation rates during an event itself. If I'm introducing carbohydrate, I'm much more concerned about sabotaging my digestive tract by overconsuming carbohydrates or any fuel for that matter during the race itself. So for me, 40 grams seems to be the spot where if I stay at or slightly under that, then I will have a very low chance of experiencing a digestive issue that could ultimately really hinder my potential and performance. So that's where I come up with that 40 gram number. It's likely a little more than I technically need based on paper lab results, but it's also not going to necessarily do me any damage to push up to that. Uh, so that's oftentimes where I kind of come up with that. So types of carbs, uh, for me, uh, when I'm doing something active racing, training, that sort of stuff, I'll lean pretty heavily on S fuels race plus. So it's a powder that I'll put in with my water and it comes, it's, it's S fuels carbohydrate product. They have a lot of kind of low carbohydrate products that are built on the foundation of fat and protein. Uh, this particular one is for these particular situations where you're like me and you need to get like somewhere between 30 to 40 grams of carbohydrate per hour on race day. Or another scenario here would be if I'm training for a race and I'm starting to peak for it, I like to divide my long runs into two categories. Category one is a fat adaptation field test. Category two is practicing race day fueling and hydration or, or protocol. So 
the field test day, I'm just doing water and electrolytes and basically trying to gauge how do I feel throughout this long run when I'm only consuming water and electrolytes? If I feel great the whole time or even better as the run develops, that's enough confirmation for me that my fat adaptation or my fat oxidation rates are plenty high and I don't necessarily need to push that needle further. Then that signals to me, it's time to start practicing the fueling strategy that I will use on race day so that I can confirm that nothing has changed since last time I had raced and just you know, put my body through the rigors that it's going to go through on race day as specifically as possible. So that will be a big point in my training where I'll start using more of that S fuels race plus with race day. My recommendations for single day ultra marathons are often going to be a mix between a sports product and some whole solid food options. Now your intensity is low enough. You can get away with a little more solid food. And in fact, it may actually help with digestion. So I like to do about a 50, 50 split between sports products and solid foods. And I also like to make the flavor and texture fairly polarizing. So I don't feel like I'm just taking the same thing all day long. So if I have a liquid, slightly sweeter flavored thing with the S feels race plus, I'm probably going to pair that with something that is maybe crunchy, salty, savory. So something like, uh, like a cracker or something like that, or a pretzel, I'm still going to try to get mostly carbohydrate from a ratio standpoint with small amounts of fat and protein, because again, I don't need to defend my fat stores during a race. Uh, I need to defend my glycogen stores. So that's kind of how I structure the race side of things or the performance side of carbohydrates and what they kind of come from. Uh, some of the other carbohydrate sources I will use when I'm targeting those specific numbers mentioned earlier would be fruit, things like berries, melons, apples, uh, tubers. So like sweet potatoes, regular potatoes, uh, that sort of stuff, any type of tuber really beets, honey sparingly, but some sourdough bread, uh, trace amount or trace amounts of that. Uh, there's going to be small amounts of carbohydrate, but some in things that I'll eat like broccoli, spinach, cauliflower, cabbage, dark leafy greens. So usually it's the majority of the time it's a combination of those, but generally speaking, I'm not so rigid that it's like, Oh, if something that doesn't fit those particular food groups is completely off the table the entire time, it's more of like, let's get this right very often so that if you have a situation, whether you're socializing or something like that, and you're eating something that you normally wouldn't, it's not that big of a deal. So it's kind of like an 80, 90% uh, adherence and give yourself a little bit of flexibility to just live life outside of that is what I find makes it sustainable. Um, also the when of the carbohydrates. Uh, so I think I sort of touched on this a little bit on when I was talking about the short intervals, but at when is basically night before big early session or big early morning sessions or key early morning sessions uh, especially if they tend to be moderate to high intensity. So those short intervals, long intervals, tempo runs, that sort of stuff uh, after those sessions. So right away after that is kind of a good spot to put some of the carbohydrates you can have for the day in, and then during some of the key sessions. So like that long run race plan practice, that sort of thing. All right. There you go. Have it. Those are the three questions for this one. Uh, normally with these solo episodes, I will put together a, sample day of training and nutrition. Uh, I left that one off for this one just because the question, this last question, which happened to be kind of a little more lengthy one was, I think feel detailed enough that you kind of got a little bit of that. So I'm sort of doubling down on it, but I will go back to that 
in future episodes. So for those of you who are like really curious about getting like a snapshot of what does a day of training and nutrition look like for me, uh, I like to share those because it gives the context of what I'm doing from an activity standpoint and kind of ties that all together. So those will be on future episodes. And I'll also probably bring back, I started doing this a little bit last year when I first started in some of these solo episodes was doing a kind of workout challenge where I'll, I'll have like kind of a beginner, intermediate, advanced version, but challenge the listeners to do a specific workout, whether it's something that they've done before or not kind of adds to the excitement. Uh, I'll probably weave that back into some of these future episodes, but uh, thank you for tuning into this episode. If you have questions you'd like me to address in future ones, do not hesitate to reach out to me on my social media channels or an email. The show email is hpopodcast at gmail.com. My social channels, Instagram at Zach Bitter, Twitter at Z Bitter, Facebook at Z Bitter Endurance. Uh, those are kind of the key ones that I uh, am hanging out on the most. If you want to follow my training, you can search for my name on Strava. That's where I lo log and report the majority of my, my training. So if interested in any of those things, following along for updates and stuff like that, uh, head over and give me a follow on those platforms, as well as shooting over any questions you may have for future episodes. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed this one. Take care and enjoy the rest of the week. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think.